It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm, here with good news and even better news. The good news? State Farm has new lower car insurance rates. The even better news? That means you can now get the service and convenience of a local State Farm agent at surprisingly great rates. State Farm can help you save more cash and get the good neighbor service you deserve. Just talk to your local State Farm agent or visit statefarm.com to find out how much you can save on your car insurance. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You're Locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. With the Warriors having an off day before their game in Charlotte after the loss to the Miami Heat, I wanted to do an email bag to catch up on some of the questions that had been asked at various points. If you want to ask more questions, you can reach out to me, NBA at gmail.com. And I will not include the questioners because I did not ask for their permission in terms of that. So if somebody, if you want me to read your name, then just give me permission explicitly in the email. I'm a lawyer, so I'm very anal about this sort of thing. And the questions are from all over time periods. I just keep a Google Doc of various things that I've been asked. Some of them end up getting answered by context, but I, I of course, will not do those on this show. The first question is about flagrant fouls and protecting Stephen Curry, and I'm always going to shorten the questions because emails are a little bit longer. We've seen a lot of flagrants called lately to protect stars, but Steph Curry gets whacked after shots all the time and they included various examples. And the rule for a flagrant foul is, I'll read it verbatim, if contact committed against a player with or without the ball is interpreted to be unnecessary, a flagrant will be assessed. And that's a flagrant one. It's unnecessary and excessive for a flagrant two. They're not explicitly in the rule, in that part of the rule, but generally speaking, there's also the idea of potential for injury. And Many will hear that and say, well, yeah, going into a guy, especially after he shoots, is the, is that potential? And it can be at moments, but really it's hard to say that from a ref's perspective when you're thinking about it in the heat of the moment that that wasn't in the, like, in the scope of trying to get a block or something like that. Most players are at least competent enough if they're going to give a player a hit in that context to do it in the form of something that at least ostensibly looks like a contest. When they don't even have that, They probably should be called with a a flagrant foul, but that doesn't really happen very often. More likely than not, it would come in the form of just giving a personal foul, which would be enough to deter the contact more than they already do. And the league has gotten better overall at handling this with shooters. Curry does not get the benefit of it actually as much as some other players. He gets popped more often. I think it's also sometimes because it's not that he's somebody standing where he lands, which is what the NBA is getting better at calling. It's more somebody hitting him, and that's functionally a little bit different. And there was a play against the Nuggets I was thinking about where he just got popped after, right, kind of right as he landed, and that's a little bit different. Ref should get better at calling it. And that ties in with the second question on that note, which is the pers- the questioner didn't understand why Curry draws so few fouls for players grabbing him off the ball. The main reason that doesn't get called very often is because it's very hard to see in the context of refereeing. It's important to always remember not only what a referee's responsibilities are, but what their angle is. If Curry's being grabbed off the ball, that means that somebody else has the ball. So at least one ref, maybe two, are focused more in that direction. And it's just not the focus of the action. It should be called more. It would be a benefit of having more referees on the floor and making it a greater point of emphasis. But 
from a pragmatic realist perspective, that will always be a loophole in it. And it's all it's you can see the benefit there, the evidence of that in the playoffs. It happens even more. They get away with more contact and it is generally a foul a lot of the time. And it should be called more, but it isn't. And realistically, it's probably not going to be something that gets corrected. And that ties in with their last question, which is, does Steph need to flop like LeBron to start getting calls? Yes, he should exaggerate contact when possible because the Warriors as a team don't really do this. And I, I, I wish it didn't come to that, especially as somebody who is a fan of, of soccer, especially European soccer. And European soccer has incentivized that conduct so much that it has made the sport much less enjoyable. But at a certain point, the ends justify the means, especially if he's getting fouled in the first place. So I would seriously consider it, especially on grabbing, acting like, you know, acting like they're going after you and something like that, and drawing more awareness to the issue from his perspective is there. Coach Kerr has brought it up at various moments, but the player himself just initiating it by his actions certainly can help. And if it doesn't help, well, at least you tried it. It didn't affect anything else. And he's not getting that many calls otherwise, so you're not at risk of turning the refs against you because it's not the same kind of downside as a player who gets a lot of those calls. And with LeBron, it's a little bit different also with him because he actually a lot of times doesn't get that many calls in a different part of the game because in transition, he just gets whacked, but he's so big that it doesn't affect him as much as it affects other players, but those are fouls too. So LeBron has learned over time, didn't do this when he was younger. He has learned over time that you need to sell the contact at least a little bit. Don't always need to sell it as much as he did when Draymond ran into him in the game on Martin Luther King Day, but that's a separate point. At least he has gotten to the degree where he understands that some part of it is there. And there was embellishment on the Draymond play. And I think that was completely deliberate to try to get a rise out of him and possibly draw an extra foul, which is exactly what happened because he knows that the refs look at Draymond differently. He's an incredibly smart player and he baited Draymond successfully in game four of the finals. So why not try it again? Next question is from January as well from earlier in the month about Curry and Durant pick and rolls. And the word that was in the context of the Warriors trying it a little bit more against the Blazers. And but the question was broader. So I wanted to do it, which was why they don't run it more often. And they were speculating is, is it not in in line with Kerr's vision for the offense? Are they doing it temporarily to see if it's going? Why is the reason it's not effective? And it isn't really in line with what Steve Kerr does with the offense. It has been noted numerous times in various forms, including on this podcast a couple times, that the Warriors do not actually run that much pick and roll. They function more in terms of ball movement and player movement and do not use that standard thing. Last year, I believe they ran the the least pick and rolls in the league. Sometimes that gets a little bit fuzzy because they run a lot of handoffs and handoffs and pick and rolls sometimes look very, very similar in terms of the actual effect. So I wouldn't go too nutso about that. But the straight up, you know, one guy coming up, setting a screen and the other guy going around it is not a hallmark of the Warriors. They did it a lot in the 2015 finals. I personally believe they should run it more because they have personnel that can do well with it, especially with the ancillary shooters on the edges, depending on who's running the pick and roll. You can see a team like the Rockets that has basically built their entire offense around one five pick and rolls and having shooters around it. The Warriors could do that too. Not as frequently as the Rockets do. They don't need to, but a little bit more than they do would certainly help especially running it with guys that are vastly different sizes because you don't want to necessarily switch that as much. And ideally, the players are going to attack those switches as well. A big part of why Curry-Durant screens are not as effective 
And this is something my friend Ethan Sherwood Strauss has written, had wrote about, I think it was last week, might have been a little bit before that, is that Kevin Durant does not set good screens. Just straight up, he does not set good screens. It has not been something he has been asked to do at other points in his career. And broadly speaking, a large portion of great players, especially NBA players, don't set good screens. Draymond Green is the exception rather than the rule, and he is built differently than Durant. Draymond's a, bit, a big dude in terms of base, and Durant's smaller in that sense. I mean, he's he's big in his own he's big in his own way because he's tall and he's lanky, but that's generally not as conducive to screening. And it would be great if Durant set better screens, and maybe he will moving forward. It could be something that he works on, but it takes a little while to get better at that, to learn the angles, and to actually want to do it. Even players who are traditional bigs, like Kristaps Porzingis is one that I think of. Carl Anthony Towns also generally sets shaky screens. They don't live for that. DeMarcus Cousins slips way too many screens. So th- that's not a, as big a part of the NBA right now as, as I wish it were, because generally setting good screens actually helps the screener get open because when you create that space generally speaking opponents scramble to the guy with the ball because the guy with the ball is then open and then that scramble often creates a look for the screener especially a pick and pop screener can do a great job in that because his guy's often going to go over to help whether that's in the form of a hedge or an out and out switch and if the other player is going to come back and get him you're generally going to have that look Durant would be great at that but he is not there yet and the other reason why it hasn't been as good this year is just because even though he's been better the last couple weeks, Stephen Curry has not been as dominant as a pull-up shooter this year. And that was a big part of what made the Warriors pick and roll offense great when they actually ran it. Because the concept of a pick and roll is to try to create space or to create a, t- a tough decision. So with the Warriors, they were the space part of it was so deadly because Curry could pull up and he knows how much space he needs that teams chose to switch it. And many teams, not everybody. And that forced the defense into awkward situations. Sometimes you could pass the ball back. When Curry was at his best, he was good at attacking those switches. So the calculus actually changes with somebody like him. Whereas, say, Alfred Payton, who the Warriors played over the weekend, he's not a great shooter. The space doesn't matter. So you generally see the opponent drop underneath the screen because that way they don't have to deal with it. So the Warriors can address that a little bit differently. But if Curry's not making the shots at the ridiculous level that he was before, and this is something Damian Lillard is good at as well, then it becomes less catastrophic and teams can handle it a little bit differently. And he's also done a worse job this year attacking on the switch. So each each part of that has been affected a little bit differently and at the same point you don't expect those same foibles to continue curry has been great shooting off the dribble for the last couple years and it looked i when i did that if you haven't listened to it i did a whole podcast on this a couple weeks ago and the numbers to me looked unsustainably bad for him i don't think he's going to reach the heights of last season that was just completely ridiculous but if he can get to 2014 15 levels as a pull-up shooter that's more than enough so we'll see if it reaches it at that point but it isn't a hallmark of the Kerr offense and i don't think it ever will be so i wish that they did it more they actually have great pick and roll personnel zaza pachulia sets good screens too but it isn't what they do and when you have the best offense in the league even though you have the best personnel in the league i can't be too ornery about it the other reason why I like it and would think about this more, and I've, I've advocated for this in the past, is you want to have a couple simple things in your back pocket for when the playoffs come around because opponents just, the game gets stalled, offenses get stagnant. You can't run the beautiful game all the time because guys get grabbed on, on going through actions, just like I was talking about in the first question. And a pick and roll is so basic that you can 
make the foundational pieces of it work, especially when you have the personnel. So in if all else fails, you know, 14 seconds, 14 seconds left on the shot clock. If you haven't been able to get anything else going, just bring Draymond to the top, set a pick and roll, set a screen. Durant can do the same thing, whatever you want to do. And the Warriors also should be considering doing that with Durant as the initiator. I think he can do a good job there. Maybe uh, if we're playing him, if the Warriors are playing him at the at small forward, run a three-two with Clay would be interesting. Three-five with Pachulia. You can do a lot of different alignments that work well to just get the defense off rhythm, and Durant can pull up. He's a really good shooter in that way. So I would like to see more of it. I think that Kerr is focusing on high ceiling stuff, and I think it's good to have some high floor offense in your game, and I think that's a big part of the reason why they lost to the Cavs because the Cavs took away a lot of the high ceiling stuff. But we'll have to see if having Stephen Curry at 100% or close to it, even if it's not at his MVP level, will be enough to make that difference, and I certainly feel that that plus Durant could be. Next question is shorter and I would say in some ways more fun. It's about Patrick McCaw. Way back from November, I put in a little bit about the date. So the questioner said, I've really enjoyed watching Patrick McCaw through the early season. I think he'll be a perfect third guard for the future. His game already seems so polished, but part of my question is, how does he improve and basically what will he be when he gets when he gets older and when he gets better? McCaw is very good cerebrally, but his skill level can certainly improve a ton. Just getting more reliable with his handle is a very important part of that so that when you when a guy closes out on you you can take a couple dribbles, make a pass, take that shot yourself, getting a more versatile jump shot so being able to hit the catch and shoot corner 3 is a foundational piece that he's getting closer to but isn't all the way there, but then also pull-ups off the dribble, being able to get a runner or a floater when that's as far as you can get. He's I would say a better passer at this point even than Clay is, so he won't have to work as hard at that part of it, especially because he's pretty intuitive about the space and the time that he needs for that. But offensively, working on his jump shot, making it more versatile, coming off screens, all those sorts of elements will really help him a lot. And he will be more of a complimentary player. So you don't want the ball in his hands like to have him initiating actions, making him run pick and rolls. I mean, if he can do it, it's great, but it's not going to be his spot. So you do that defensively, getting stronger is an absolutely huge part of it. You want to get stronger, but you don't want to lose the foot speed because that's great. And learn what part of defense he's best at. So I generally differentiate between on-ball and off-ball is a pretty big gap because the way that you address defense, the way that you address your opponent is completely different. Off-ball is a lot about discipline and about maintaining control as things change around. You could think about defending Klay Thompson. You need to keep an eye on him, but you also need to keep an eye on everybody who's screening for you. On-ball, it's a little bit different because you know that there are going to be players involved in you, and that a lot of that is also about experience, learning how screens come, learning on that specific player, where does he want to shoot, where does he not want to shoot. I would love to see McCaw get some experience summer league d league on ball i think that he could do a really good job there and i'm going to talk a little bit later about good defenders and bad defenders for various players on on the warriors and i my instinct when i watch mccaw with his handle or with his hands and with his assessment he could do a really good job there not maybe as as like be a starting defensive one but to have that spot and then if you have a bigger guy who can handle the ball like let's say Kevin Durant or even Draymond play him in that role it's also what I've seen from Ian Clark Clark does it more through strength than anything else McCaw would probably not do that unless he gets a whole hell of a lot stronger but McCaw can do well in those capacities so I would say that and then 
it would be great if he put a little bit more time and energy into defensive rebounding. He is not so amazing in transition at this point where, you know, he needs to be the Corey Brewer leaking out all the time and securing the rebound, especially when he's going to be building time in for the Warriors who play small a lot. A concerted effort there, like what Avery Bradley has done this year, where he's just gotten way more interested in getting defensive rebounds would help a lot. Next question is about two for ones uh, from earlier this month. Question says, anecdotally, I've seen a number of games in Coach Kerr's tenure where the team has not taken advantage of two for ones at the end of quarters. I'd be interested in analyzing whether the point totals are there. Not sure if the data is there. I don't know if the data is there either. It, it presumably could be scrubbed from play-by-play data. I do not have the aptitude to do it. I don't know where it will be done because that is not my life. But I have enough anecdotal experience both with the Warriors and not the Warriors to know how terrible they are in those circumstances. And there are two functional problems that they have. One is going too early. Various people can be the cause of this. Incidentally, a lot of times when he's on the floor, it's JaVale McGee because JaVale McGee just comes up and sets the screens too early and the player, if it's Curry or whoever else, just goes, okay, we'll go for it. They have confidence in their offense. They often get a good look, but there's six seconds left. And then they lose focus. They don't get all the way back together on defense. A lot of times, a five-second or six-second remaining time creates a scramble possession even when the other team is back because the offensive guys are so discombobulated and the Warriors have not done a good job of reacting to that. I legitimately don't know if it's coaching, execution, both, neither, but it's something. And they should get better at it because they leave points on the board at important moments too with those sorts of circumstances. Hasn't really bitten them too much this year, but it only takes one or two games in the playoffs to have that really matter. Next question is from December. Uh, I was watching Caldwell Pope the other night, thinking about how it seems like he's the best player at single-handedly shutting Curry down the last few years. Would love to hear a breakdown of who you think is the best in the league at, at guarding Steph, Clay, and Katie individually, and something about why and how they guard them. The key attribute that you, there are key attributes that you want to look for for each one of those guys. First, guarding Steph and Curry, the best players. A, have a length advantage on him without losing the speed advantage, but also are very good at navigating screens because the best players guarding him don't rely that much on switching. And I would say the best ones are Avery Bradley and Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. Both of them are, are awesome on Steph. When they've really had the chance to do it, I think Danny Green has been good on him too, but not as good as the other two. And you can see those similarities between them. It's intensity, recognition of what the Warriors are doing, being able to get there fast enough. John Wall's actually done a good job at a couple moments, but Curry's also had some big games against the Wizards. And all of those elements are there. And Curry actually does a better job sometimes against guys that are just strong and tough, like Kyle Lowry. You would expect that they would do better against Curry, but the size part of it can certainly help. And I like more of the twos that are playing down a position on Curry. I think they do a better job as long as they can navigate screens. And most of those guys can't, which is why KCP and Bradley are so special. Klay Thompson is a little bit simpler. You want a player who has size, who has stamina, and who has durability of mind, I guess would be the best way to put it, recognition, because they need to be able to see what's going on, but more importantly, they need to be able to stick with Clay and be able to affect his shot when they're there. And they're basically the the nice thing for some teams is that there are plenty of those players in the league. Even a smaller one like Tony Allen can certainly do a great job because he can get into Clay space. He's so good at recognizing everything else. The problem is Clay is generally your third priority defensively. And there isn't much that Clay can do other than when he goes off. 
to change that. And when Clay is at his best, he doesn't really care what's going on in front of him, what the other guy is doing. Like Paul George got a couple possessions on him when Clay scored 60. Paul didn't do a whole heck of a lot there. And he's a, generally a good defender, especially when he cares. So Clay, you, you want that kind of an attribute, just somebody who can stick with him and does enough to make him have bad looks he's still gonna take them because it's clay thompson but that's what you want to look for and with durant in a way it's simple because the most important element is that they don't have any other fatal flaw so if a player is too slow like when a team tries to put a four on him they're just gonna get smoked because he knows how to do that if a player is too small durant can just shoot over him so you're looking for those special individuals that don't have a defensive weakness the players Kawhi Leonard is the most obvious. Kawhi's had a series of really nice games on Durant. Eventually, Giannis could be there because he's so long and he'll get stronger. He's a little bit stronger now. LeBron has had some good games on Durant over the years. And LeBron getting a little bit slower with timing. He's still so strong that he has that advantage. But LeBron getting a little bit slower, I think, will be a lingering thing. Not Maybe not as much in this finals, but if, the, if this happens again in 2018 or 19, we might start seeing that as a bigger issue. And it's also why I've been really critical of what Cleveland has done since Durant signed with the Warriors, which is that they don't have any other options. They haven't built in somebody else who's kind of like the failsafe. They added DeAndre Liggins, who's a better defender of ones and twos, and Richard Jefferson and Mike Dunleavy, except for Jefferson's play on Durant on Christmas. Generally speaking, those guys weren't the answer. They added Kyle Korver instead of Dunleavy. He's not the answer either. So Cleveland not getting that guy, I think, is a, a pretty big mistake that they've made. They prioritized other things, which they want to do whatever they can do what they want but it's a it's a pretty big issue for me with them and it's also why facing the Spurs will be very interesting and also as good as the Utah Jazz are and I'm a big fan of them even though they did lose tonight to the Denver Nuggets they don't have that player for him they have George Hill who I think can do a good job on staff and they have enough size and, and talent to to score pretty well on the Warriors but they don't have that guy for Durant and that might end up making a big difference especially if he's hitting his jump shot because Durant can do well driving but he doesn't have to drive so Rudy Gobert has a different sort of an impact. Next question is, uh, this is less relevant than it was before, but still I wanted to answer it. The, the questioner noticed that Steph Curry isn't taking advantage of big man switches as much this year. Do you know if the coaches no longer want him to go one-on-one? -on -one? As far as I have been able to tell, it is not a coaching issue. I think it has been more his own reluctance at various moments to, to maximize that advantage. He has been getting better, I think, since New Year's about. He's been a little bit more aggressive when those circumstances happen. He's also been shooting more pull-ups, which is the other way you could take advantage of the switches, just shoot before the switch all the way happens. And I don't believe that it's anything particular from coaching. It's if he can make it work, he makes it works. If he can't make it work, then he doesn't. So I, th I think that's really as basic as it was. And the last question, I think I've answered this before, but I get asked it all the time, so I will answer it again, which was, in one recent show, you mentioned passing how defensive RPM was skewed in, in some way, and Clay Thompson would have lower results in RPM than reality or the eye test. This is a, a kind of a basic point with RPM that is just the way that this works. So RPM uses a lot of different inputs from what I understand, you know, how well a team performs. They try to separate out teammate quality. They try to separate out opponent quality. But one of the pivotal elements that RPM uses, and they have reasons for this because generally these elements do tie to quality play on the defensive end. They look at things like how, how often a guy gets steals, how often a guy gets blocks, how often a guy gets rebounds. 
because most guys who are good defenders, at, as, even at shooting guard, you know, really whatever you're going to do, are good in at least some of those categories. You can think of Tony Allen, Kawhi Leonard, whoever else. Clay Thompson is the exception that proves the rule. He is a, a good defender. He might be overrated when people say he's a great defender. He has great moments, but he isn't dominant like those type of guys. Like, I wouldn't put Clay on an all-defensive team. He would be a little bit below that, but still way above average. And very good specifically for what the Warriors want to do. And when you combine that with his offensive aptitude, he's a wonderful player. He will make my all-star reserves when Nate Duncan and I do that on Wednesday on the Twitter NBA show. That said, he's not at that, you know, rarefied air type of guy. But Clay doesn't get rebounds very much, a little bit better this year, doesn't get steals, doesn't get blocks. And so RPM sees those sorts of attributes and goes, oh, well, maybe he's just not that good at defense. The team does well when he's out there, but maybe it's these other guys and they can give them a little bit of a boost. You can think of a million different examples of why this logic makes sense. A good one for me is Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins is broadly speaking, he has his moments, but generally speaking, he's a bad defender. He doesn't do well in any of these categories. So RPM goes, hey, look, he doesn't do any of these. He's a bad defender. RPM is broadly right. Other players, it can overstate it. The easiest example of this is somebody like DeAndre Jordan or Hassan Whiteside, where they get a lot of blocks and rebounds, but sometimes that comes at the expense of the other team getting looks because maybe they're block hunting and then they uh, another guy gets an offensive rebound, another guy gets a pass off the off the block attempt. Not saying either one of those guys is a bad defender in any way. Their, st- their information, their stats just get overinflated and I believe it's called the box score prior, but that can work for some players and not for others. And that's the idea of why a stat, a black box stat, any sort of stat that just relies on on the context and the numbers in front of it is never going to be perfect because you can set rules in and say, good players do this, bad players do that, but it is never uniform. And there's not a way to necessarily ascertain that. Just like how you can't always put credit and blame on a defensive possession. Like, oh, well, this guy did a, you know, he committed the fouls. That means he did something bad. Maybe he was covering for a teammate. Maybe like I was thinking about this, I, I posted the video for my breakdown for the athletic on Monday's game or yeah, on Monday's game was that on one play, Draymond Green actually left JaVale out to dry. He pressured too far, let James Jones, let James Johnson get past him. And then Johnson alley-ooped it to Willie Reed. JaVale, you know, letting his guy, his guy got the alley-oop dunk, but JaVale made the right play because if he hadn't gotten out there, James Johnson would have gotten a dunk himself. So maybe a player like Rudy Gobert could have been in both places at once, but broadly speaking, he did a good job. So if that play happened and you and you used kind of a statistical model, it would probably say that JaVale did something wrong, but it actually wasn't his fault. He makes other mistakes all the time, but that one was not his fault at all. So that's why it's very hard with defense. You know, the Holy Grail in many ways, statistically, from what I understand, and this is not my world in terms of creating stats, it's more in terms of analyzing them, is that you're never going to get everything perfect because there are so many other variables that cannot be perfectly quantified and that context is so important for. And so you have to watch a lot of film. You have to see what you're going to see. And also, you know, see, hopefully you get a chance to experience players in different environments. And sometimes a player gets hung out to dry by some of their teammates. Sometimes they don't. And 
you learn through that and you make your own evaluations and it's hard and it would be nice if there was a way to make it clean easy and say with a single number these guys are good defensively these guys are bad and smart people will try for a long long time and i hope eventually somebody gets it right but i sincerely doubt it for that exact reason so that's enough questions for now i did really enjoy doing this i always enjoy doing it if you have any more questions i always read them and i respond to what i can sometimes in this form sometimes it takes a long time but danny larue nba at gmail.com d-a-n-n-y-l-e-r-o-u-x and then mba for the gmail address and then danny larue is just my twitter handle for this type of thing email is way better because it just sticks in my inbox and everything like that otherwise it can get lost in the shuffle on twitter i get a lot of mentions it's a perk of having a lot of people following you on Twitter is that you just get a lot of interactions and I lose stuff all the time. It's just the way that it works. So if you want to support the show, you can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's iTunes, but totally fine if it's not. Also subscribe and download every episode, whether you listen to it or not. I would love for you to listen, but it's okay if you don't because that is important for advertisers and everything else. And if you want to advertise on the show, reach out to me, NBA at gmail.com. Always do enjoy having those conversations. I have plenty of great data on who listens to the show and I love doing it. And that's another way to make it happen. So I will be back on Wednesday night after Warriors Hornets, another Steph Curry return game to Charlotte. Generally speaking, those have been strong performances for him. Kemba Walker is having the best season of his career, definitely earning all-star consideration. So that will be there. You can also check out the Twitter NBA show Nate Duncan and I are doing. We will do a halftime show of Warriors Hornets, and then we will do a post-game show after the second game, or maybe during the second game because it's Lakers Blazers and that game might get out of hand. You can follow that Nate Duncan's Periscope, which is, I believe, Nate Duncan NBA. The link will be on my Twitter, of course, and you can check that out. And then there will be a Locked on Warriors after all that. I'll probably record it solo late at night because I don't get home until late. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. San Jose Sharks hockey is back, and we've got you covered five days a week at Locked on Sharks. I'm Kyle Demetrius. I'm J.D. Young. I'm Eric Fowle. Together we make sure you're never without your Sharks programming. Will the Sharks make a trade for a right winger? We got you covered. Will Eric Carlson's groin hold up for the entire season? We've got you covered. Whatever happens with Team Teal every day, we've got you covered at Locked On Sharks five days a week on the Locked On Podcast Network. This is Josh Lloyd, the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, the number one fantasy basketball podcast in the world. If you're looking for information regarding fantasy basketball, recaps of the NBA, this is the show for you. We are heading into the offseason and starting to get ready for the 2020-2021 fantasy season. We'll have all the information on what happens through the rest of the playoffs, free agency, the NBA draft, and then heading into a big 2021 season. So make sure you're checking out the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast.